Today's Pirkei Avot Shi'ur is being studied Le'ilun Nishmat Yeshua Ben Bahiyya Ruach Adonai Tenihenu Began Eden Amen Dedicated by his grandson Yaakov Avraham Kassin Again, today's Limud Yeshua Ben Bahiyya Mr. Freddy Asulin Alava Shalom Amen. All right, ladies, uh, we begin <clears throat> today's uh, shiur. We're doing something very, very great. Um, we cannot underestimate it. We're learning the Pirkei Avot, and we're learning it thoroughly. We're not just uh, <clears throat> we're not just visiting each Mishnah. We're actually entering each Mishnah and studying it uh, with the proper analysis. Uh, today's Mishnah, uh, my book it's Perek Aleph, Pet Mishnah Yud Gimal. Uh, every book has it configured a little differently. The Mishnah starts off, Hu Haya Omer. <clears throat> the author of today's Mishnah is the same author of last week's Mishnah, Hillel, the great rabbi, Hillel. And uh, his teaching, Negad Shema Avad Shemeh. That already is a mouthful. I'd like to stop right there and first explain it. It's a quite difficult only because most Mishnayot are written in Lashon HaKodesh, in Hebrew. For some reason, this Mishnah, the author decided to write it for us in Aramaic. So we're not familiar with these words. Negad, Shema, Avad, Shemeh. So we need the help of the commentators. Uh, I will explain it in the most basic way. And then we'll get to more uh, complicated, or I should say sophisticated, interpretations. The first interpretation is telling us like this, negad. Negad means if somebody is trying to attract or draw. Shema is a person's name. Negad Shema, somebody that's interested in promoting himself. Uh, They're pursuing recognition. Negad Shema, he is drawn after popularity. He wants people to, uh, to talk about him, or he wants to become famous. And there are some people that are driven by glory and honor, and um, they'll go at all levels and they'll resort to even unethical means to attain that end. Uh, so the Mishnah tells us that anybody that seeks to pursue and to promote his self, the Mishnah tells us it's not going to be a good ending. Avad Shemeh. Avad means he will lose that name. That whatever he was trying to accomplish, he will not succeed, and he will not be remembered favorably. Uh, It seems that uh, a good reputation uh, cannot be bought, or cannot be sought after. A good reputation has to be earned. And uh, an amazing thing Chaim Baruch used to always tell us that the Mishnah in another place says that anybody that runs to Kavod, runs towards the Kavod, the Kavod will run away from him. Uh, you think it should be the opposite. You know, if you're running towards fame and glory, you think that you might catch up to it. But it doesn't happen. And only somebody that runs away from honor, the honor reaches him. Which is an amazing thing. It's counterintuitive. The Mishnah tells us exactly what you would not have expected. You would have expected, well, those that are involved in, you know, getting themselves out there, getting their name in the public, making noise, and making a lot of hype. So, oh, everybody's going to talk about them and they're going to become famous. And the guy that's a meek one that doesn't talk so much, that sits in his house, doesn't really make uh, too much promotion, he'll, he'll never be known. The Mishnah says it's exactly the opposite. That one that runs away from kavod, kavod has a certain way of finding those that don't seek it. And kavod is allergic to those that actually are interested in it. So Chabaruch would tell us the following story. He says there was a big rabbi, well, he didn't say big rabbi, a rabbi. And uh, he once said to a bigger rabbi, he said, I don't understand. My whole life I'm running away from kavod. But the kavod never never caught up with me. And the Mishnah says, if you run away from Kavod, the Kavod will reach you. 
So the rabbi answered him, it's true, you ran away from Kavod, but you were looking over your shoulder. You were looking over your shoulder for the Kavod to catch up. When we say to run away from Kavod, we run with your head down, that you're not interested. And uh, it's very, very true. If you look at some of the biggest rabbis in Israel, they didn't have publicists. But we all know them. We all know who they are. Uh, when you go to... Uh, it's uh, it's Perek Aleph. My book it's Mishnah Yud Gimel. Aleph Yud Gimel. Who I Omer Negad Shema Avad Shema Sheme. There was a rabbi that I once had the privilege to see when I was in ninth grade, a long time ago. I think that was probably 1982, and we went on a class trip for the summer to Israel, and we went to the city of Bnei Berak. And we were lucky to have an audience with a rabbi called Rav Yaakov Yisrael Kanievsky, a.k.a. also known as the Stipler Rebbe. The Stipler Rebbe is the father of this Rav Chaim Kanievsky that we have today, the famous rabbi in his father. And he was a holy man. And it was very, very hard to get an audience with him because he would just sit and learn all day long from morning to night. And where did he learn? In his apartment. He never left. And I said to myself at the time, how do we all know him? How do we know his address? How do we know this man exists? He, he, he doesn't have a phone. He doesn't have a newspaper uh, uh, outside his house, a, a publicist that's taking videos. How is it possible that we know this man? And the explanation is, those that run away from Kavod and are not interested in it, the Kavod finds them, the Torah unearths them. Makes them makes them well known. So that's the, the simple interpretation uh, of the Mishnah. Uh, as a matter of fact, we all know what King Solomon said regarding reputation. He said that tov shem meshem tov. He would say that a good name is even greater than good oil. What does he mean? Now, obviously, Shalom Melech was brilliant. He was the wisest of all men. There had to be chokhmah in that. A name and oil. Now, I, I understand Shem and Shemin. It has the same letters almost. So therefore, it's a play on words. Tov Shem, Shemin, Tov. But besides that, what would be the connection between a good name and good oil? A simple interpretation I always understood. The oil that he's talking about is fragrant oil. Like... Um, the oil of a, 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 the balsam oil, which has a very, very, very strong and uh, aromatic, delicious, uh, delicious smell. And when you open the bottle of the balsam, uh, the balsam oil, it wafts uh, very, very far away. A person could be walking down the block, he smells it. So therefore, oil has the property that when it has a good fragrance, its smell is uh, felt at a distance. However, a person's good reputation reaches from one end of the world to the other end of the world. Therefore, the fragrance that comes from somebody that earned a proper reputation, they know about him across the continent. They know about him across oceans, much further than the distance that fragrant oil is able to travel. Tov shem shem and tov. That would be one explanation. Uh, I think there's a, uh, a deeper explanation. Shalomor Melech is talking about good oil. Because it must be that if there's good oil, there must be bad oil. He's saying Shemen Tov. Tov Shem is Shemen Tov. That must be, there must be Shemen Ra. And we all know that oil has a property. So no, no matter what you mix it with, the oil always goes to the top. That's the nature of oil, uh, unless it's inferior oil. Inferior oil eventually will sink to the bottom. That's how you know it's fake. And Shalom Melech is telling us that's the same nature of a name, of reputation. It depends how he earned it. If a person earned his reputation the old-fashioned way, he wasn't looking for honor, he just worked, he did the right thing, he was humble, he was modest, he didn't boast, it wasn't uh, egotistical. <clears throat> he just did his job. One day he's going to be recognized. The oil will eventually float to the top. 
eventually he will be known. It'll happen naturally. However, those that seek fame uh, in the wrong way, so then already that oil is not unadulterated, it's adulterated oil. It's shim and ra. In the beginning it might float to the top, but over the course of time, uh, the society is able to uh, sift out uh, the real and authentic from the faker. So that's a, that's a lesson in life. Um, the older you get, you start to see things. I've seen, I've seen things in life of people that pursued honor and you know, they don't only pursue it, but they, they demanded it. <clears throat> uh, you know, as a rabbi, you know, I'm in a business. Well, I just didn't want me to say that. So, as I told you, I'm in the business of the I rabbinate. Need, yes. I need to unmute again. I'm sorry. They just muted the screen and you I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay. I'm unmuted. One good thing that's coming out of this is teaching us to be patient. I wasn't as patient uh, as I am now, so I'm a better man as a result of all these uh, hiccups. Anyway, uh, I know it from experience. Uh, that there are those that seek honor. Uh, I've been at many weddings, as you know, and a lot of times I'm invited to be under the chuppah, <clears throat> and sometimes I'm given the job to give out the blessings. You know, there's seven blessings, and uh, it does happen sometimes that there are those uh, that will come to me and say, you know, I want to make this specific blessing and if you don't give me this blessing, because it's a little longer, uh, then uh, you know don't, I, I, don't give me anything. I'm not interested. Uh, this is you know somebody that, that doesn't even hide his intention. He tells you blatantly, "I want honor. It's a longer blessing, and therefore I want to hear my voice broadcast on the microphone for a couple of seconds extra." Um, I want to tell you about some of the rabbis that I have great respect for. There's a rabbi from Israel. I'll mention his name because I'm saying something very good about him. Rabbi Pinhasi. Maybe you heard of him. Rabbi Shmuel Pinhasi. He's a gadol ador. He's a big rabbi of a generation. And uh, I was at a wedding with him. It was in New York. Uh, I think the side of the bride that was uh, actually flew him in for the wedding. He's there. But as you know, at a wedding, it's the, it's the groom that controls the ceremony. And I was standing next to Rabbi Pinhasi, knowing good and well that he just flew... Uh, 10 hours overseas to come to this wedding. And it seems, for whatever reason, the Hatan side gave out the blessings, and uh, Rabbi Pinhasi was not part of the lineup. I guess they had a lot of rabbis. Uh, and uh, I was about to whisper in the, the father's ear, hey, there's a rabbi over here. He came all the way from overseas. Give him, a, uh, you know, give, give him, give him, give him the proper respect. And I was about to do it. He grabbed my hand. And he said, let me tell you something, Rabbi Eliyahu. He said, the main objective is that this couple is happily married according to the halakha. Whether I make a blessing or not does not change that fact. It doesn't matter who makes the blessings. As long as the couple is married, it doesn't bother us. It shouldn't bother us. We should be the one. We should be the one. It's not, that's, that's, not, that's not the concern. I learned a great lesson. He had no grudge. He was more concerned about the couple, which is the key. It's not about you. It's not about your honor. It's about the couple. A rabbi taught me a great lesson uh, in humility. And guess what? <laughs> I'm telling this story over about him only because he ran away from Kavod. If he would not have ran away from the Kavod, his name would not have been mentioned today. So that's a perfect example of that when you run away from honor, somehow the honor is going to catch up with you. I learned another lesson. You know, I, I, by going to a lot of these weddings, I learned a lot of life lessons. I'd like to tell you one more, and this is a key lesson in life. I had a, uh, a student of mine that I invested a lot of hours uh, over the course of the years. Invited me to the wedding. Uh, it was um, in Shadeh Sion. I, uh, I didn't march. I was sitting in my seat. And I have to be honest with you, I did anticipate that they would call me up to make a blessing, only because uh, it's the right thing to do. I did invest a lot of time in, 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 the, uh, 
in the, in the, in the uh, one of the spouses there. Okay, so they announced the first rabbi, and he, he goes up. The second rabbi goes up. Third rabbi. Now they, I see that they're not calling my name. So I came to the uh, conclusion that they're probably not going to invite me. But okay, there was a big rabbi from Israel that was sitting next to me. His name is Rabbi Israeli, and he came to me and he whispers in my ear. He says, "Don't you have something to do with this uh, this hatan? Didn't you teach him?" I said, uh, "Yeah." He said, "Well, how come they don't call you up to make a blessing?" I said, how come they don't call me up? They have so many rabbis. There's rabbis from all over the world here tonight. He says, let me teach you a lesson, Rabbi Liahu. Kavod goes like this. If your name is on that blessing, you're going to get it. Which means if it's meant for you, you're going to get it. Nobody could take it away from you. Uh, and if it's not meant for you, you're not going to get it. And he kept on saying it. He kept on repeating it. Got to the fifth blessing. There's only two more. Sixth blessing, and there's only one more. And who gets the last blessing? Either the biggest rabbi in the joint or the hazan. Sure enough, they make an announcement. Is Rabbi Feinstein. I, my name is Rabbi Feinstein. That's it. They didn't give me a blessing. That's fine. Uh, and, and the rabbi keeps on whispering. If it's yours, it's going to come to you. If you, Hashem wants you to get the honor, you have nothing to... Kavod has nothing to do with you. You're not asking for it, but if it belongs to you, you're going to get it. They call Rabbi Feinstein again. No, he's not here. Okay, they call a, a, a backup. Is Rabbi so-and-so here? No, he's not there also. And the rabbi keeps on saying, if it's yours, you're going to get it. My word of honor, they called four rabbis. <laughs> and all of them either left or weren't there or whatever it is. Now, when they ran out of rabbis, they said, okay, I guess we have no choice. Is Rabbi Manso here? Hey! <laughs> and the rabbi told I told you. You didn't ask for it. You aren't interested, but Hashem says, if you're supposed to get it, Borei Olam will make it, then it's going to come to you. And that's a, that's a lesson, uh, that's a lesson. Love. You don't ask for it, you don't demand it. If it's yours, you'll get it. And that's the first explanation of the Mishnah. Negad Shemeh, those that are drawn after their name, Avad Shemeh, they'll ultimately lose their name. But now I'd like to explain it on a, uh, on a deeper level. But you need an introduction for this uh, deep interpretation that I'm going to say. When somebody uh, passes away, they become handicapped in a major way. And that is that they cannot perform mitzvot anymore. We must not take it for granted that we have life and we have health and that we're able to perform mitzvot because the more mitzvot we can collect and gather, the better our position is going to be in Olam Abba. That should be consuming us the day long, performing mitzvot, just filling the, filling the suitcase up. That's what the Gemara says. Fill the suitcase up and come to Olam Abba prepared. The problem is that after a person passes, that's it. Whatever he has in his luggage, that's what he has. Uh, all the money in the world is not going to help a person when he gets to Olam Abba. The Gemara says, Shabbat, Shabbat. Those that toiled on Friday will eat on Shabbat. Friday is this world. Shabbat is the next world. Uh, you know better than me, ladies. If you don't prepare on Friday for Shabbat, there's no Shabbat. If somebody wakes up on Shabbat morning, oh, I forgot to put the urn on. There's no hot water. Finish. <laughs> it's too late. The mashal of Erev Shabbat to Shabbat is Olam Azir to Olam Abba. Olam Abba is only as good as your preparations. And therefore, there should be a sense of urgency that we all should be having to collect as many mitzvot as we can in order to make our positions better in Olam Abba. It's a very simple game. And the only place that mitzvot can be performed is this world. This world is called Olam HaAsiyah, the world of action. Be very proud of yourselves, ladies. What we're doing now is quality time. What we're doing now is we're filling our suitcases with Torah and mitzvot, learning Torah. That's a good thing. And what you did before was chesed. And what you can do after this is raise your children. Mitzvot the whole day. Only problem is, or it's not a problem, I once heard from Hakam Baruch Alav Shalom. he made the following 
beautiful idea. He said that it's possible that even after a person passes away, that his elevation in the next world can still continue to go up. I asked the Rav, how is that possible? He said that if he raises children that follow in the way of the Torah, so he gets the assist. The parent gets the assist because he taught the values to his children, and they only are fulfilling it because of the parents' uh, uh, um, the parents' teachings. And therefore, when the children behave in a religious way, in a Torah way, it is able to lift the parents up. And he's quoted a Gemara. The Gemara says, Bera kera de'abu. The child is the legs of the parent. What does it mean? The child is the leg of the parent? And the explanation he said is like this. When a parent is alive, so he's holech. Holech means he's growing, he's moving, he's holech, holech, holech. He's moving from one level to the next. But once they pass away, he cannot be holech anymore. He cannot, he cannot elevate himself anymore. But now he's able to use the legs of his children. The legs of his children are able to now be transferred to the credit of the parent. Bera kera de'avu. The child is the leg of the parent. The parent cannot transport himself anymore. He cannot do Torah mitzvot. But he's able to be moved by the, by the, uh, by the child. So that's why chinuch yeladim, raising children, is so important, not only for the children, but for the parent in 120, they'll still be eating dividends long after they are gone. With this, I'd like to explain to you a Gemara. The Gemara says there was a king called Hezkiah. Hezkiah was a great king. But he never got married, for whatever reason. And uh, one day the prophet Yeshaya came to visit him. And the prophet looks at the king and he says, Hezkiah, their king, uh, I have news to tell you from God. What's the, what's, have a prophecy. What's the prophecy? Kimet ata going to die, and you're not going to live. The Gemara says, that's redundant. You're going to die, you're not going to live. Met ata be'olam ve'en ata hai le'olam You're going to die in this world, and you have no olam abba. And Hezkiah was shocked. He said, What could I have done to lose olam azeh and olam abba? So he says, because you didn't get married and you didn't have children. And the, all the rabbis ask, it's definitely a mitzvah to get married and have children. But nowhere do we see that the punishment of not getting married and having children is you lose your olam abba. That's a, a, a quite extreme. So how did Yeshaya tell the king, ki met atavilot why should he lose his olam abba? Ladies, I like to say it in a revolutionary, beautiful explanation of this Gemara. You ever hear the statement that they say, Sadiqim, even in their death, are alive? Sadiqim b'mitatam nikraim hayim. What does that mean? When you go to the cemetery, they're underground like everybody else that's Sadiq. There's a tombstone there, there's dirt above them. What does the Gemara mean that it says tzaddikim in their death are alive? It means that since they left students and they left children that are perpetuating the ways that were taught to them by the tzaddik, the tzaddik doesn't die. Even in Olam Abba, it's like he's alive. He's able to advance himself. Just like when he was alive, he was able to move forward to the higher levels of, of Avodat Hashem, service of God. The tzaddik, even in his death, but you say, but what do you mean? He's not doing any mitzvot, but he left such a ripple effect of good in the world, and that good is a result of his teachings, he gets the credit. So the tzaddik never dies. The tzaddik is always moving from one level to another, but he's not doing it himself anymore because he cannot do mitzvot, but he has a liaison. He left a lot of ambassadors on earth, his children and his students. So therefore the tzaddik never dies. The tzaddik lives. However, the rasha. 
When he dies, he dies. Whatever he took with him, he took with him. And therefore, we explained like this. A person that leaves good children in this world, he never dies. When he gets to Olam Abba, he's still living. It's just he's living in a different, uh, a different uh, 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 zip code. Instead of living in, uh, you know, 11223, they move him up to Olam Abba. Different, but he's still moving. He's still active. Although he's not moving himself, his children are moving him. So in that sense, he's high. And therefore, the prophet came to Hezkiah and said, Hezkiah, you didn't get married. You're not having children. So he told them, Kimet Atta, that when you're going to die and leave this world, you're not going to be living because you didn't leave a, a legacy. You didn't leave a progeny. Why would you want to be met? The goal of life is that even after a person is met, he's still he's still living through his children, through his students. But since Hezkiah did not raise children, the prophet was telling him, Kimet ata, that at the time that you're going to be met, you're not going to be living at that time. Yeah, you have zikhuyot. You'll go to Olam Abba. You'll get to Olam Abba, but you're not going to be able to advance yourself. You're not going to be able to go to a higher level. That was the rebuke he was giving him. Not that he was telling him he lost his Olam Abba. Of course he did not learn, lose his Olam Abba. But his Olam Abba is going to be stagnant. Whatever level he gets, he has nobody on earth to lift him up. Kimet ata, that when you die, lo So Hezkiah said, why? Because she did not toil in having children. Based on this, I'd like to explain something that I said, uh, I guess about 10 years ago, maybe it's less, uh, at the 30-day arayat of Hakam Avadiyah Yosef, Shalom. Uh, I had the great privilege to be invited to Jerusalem to deliver a eulogy for Hacham in the yeshiva of Hacham in front of all the great rabbis of Jerusalem. And I had to say it in Lashon HaKodesh, in Hebrew, which, okay, I probably embarrassed myself a bit with my broken Hebrew, but nonetheless, I was able to communicate to the rabbis a very, very a big hidush, and thank God it was accepted. I said the following hadush for those that study the prophets. The pasuk comes along and says, it was the end of David's life. David became a zakin. And now, God tells King David, Go give your last will and testament to your children. So he calls Shalomor his son. And he tells Shalomor, I am now uh, following the way of the land, which simply means I'm about to expire, about to die. That's the derech of kol ha'aretz. People are born and people die. So David HaMelech is telling his son, I want you to be strong. And I want you to be a man. Question that I asked, Shalom was a very wise man. He knew that his father was old, and he knew that if his father's calling him in and is going to start to tell him, do this and do that, he knows that it's a last will and testament. Why does he have to preface it by telling him, it was obvious? And the explanation is what I believe David wasn't telling Shalom what is happening to himself, that he's about to die, but he was giving him an instruction. He was telling him, when I was alive, I was a holech. I moved. I was able to move myself through mitzvot and the Torah and the tehillim and all the good deeds that I did. But I'm commanding you now, my son. Even after I pass away, I still want to be a holech. I still want to move. I still want to be elevated. Therefore, the hazakta, you must be strong, you must be a man of, of religion. For my benefit, because I still want to be a, a mover. I don't want to be stagnant. And that's a great, great lesson. I said it about Achabah because even if he passes away, we're still reading his books. There's not a day that we don't quote his halachot. 
<laughs> so he's not he's not stagnant in Olam Abba. He left a, an influence. That's the key to leave something behind that will continue as a legacy for the deceased. We have a uh, we have a very very good custom in our community. Uh, we name uh, our children after our parents. This is a great, great custom. It's a great custom on many levels. First of all, it gives respect to our parents. Uh, I'm sure if you have uh, somebody named after you, it's a, it's a good feeling when you hear that name. Uh, it brings you, you know, it brings you happiness. But the explanation is because when you carry somebody's name that lived before you, like they say in America, you have to live up to that name. It puts a... It puts a responsibility on you, especially the members of our community that are, by and large, good people. So when you say, oh, the guy's name is Mr. So-and-so, so, oh, I remember your grandfather, Mr. So-and-so. People uh, come to me from time to time. They say, Eli Mansour, your grandfather, I remember your grandfather. I never saw my grandfather. But they remind me, what a nice man, what a, a, a good friend he was, what a, a, a you know, charming guy. Oh, I so said, I'm carrying this name. If I'm carrying this man's name, I have to now live up to this man's uh, reputation. Otherwise, I soil my own name and I soil my predecessor's name as well. I make that name that's expensive, I make it cheap. And therefore, there's a great value. When we leave children and grandchildren in the way of the Torah, we're actually elevating ourselves. We never die. The one that was able to raise the proper children, they never die. And that's what I think the Mishnah is saying. The Mishnah is to be read like this. Negad shemeh abad shema. The goal is to continue your name after your name is lost. Meaning, after a person passes away, the goal is to continue to, 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 to move your name. How can you move your name when you're passed? That's only by having a perpetuation through children and students. So therefore the goal is, it's telling you a, 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 an objective. Negad avad shema. The goal is to, uh, uh, to, to continue your name. The first explanation we said is, it's a negative. Negad shema, those that, those that try to continue the name and pursue it, will lose their name. That's the first explanation. The second explanation is a deeper one. Negad shema the goal is to continue your name, which means continue your good deeds, to continue growing, continue legacy. Even after Abad Shemeh, even after one loses his name, which is after he passes, if you could still be in the Gad Shemeh after Abad Shemeh, that is a great, a great accomplishment. And that's only done through, through children. Uh, ladies, if you allow me to say a third explanation. Actually, uh, in your honor, I'd like to say one more postscript. Can I say a P.S. to this Hindush? I don't know the rules of this class, uh, I, but I'm going to take advantage because I don't want to deprive you from this uh, uh, postscript, if it's okay. There was a great rabbi called Rav Shemshin Rafael Hirsch. Rav Hirsch uh, said that we're obligated to have children that obligation comes, to, comes from the commandment in the Bible, Peru Urvu. Peru Urvu. Be fruitful and multiply. And Rabbi Hirsch said that that's redundant. Be fruitful and multiply. I mean, just say either Peru or Urbu. What's the double language Peru Urvu? So the Rav said it's two different uh, dimensions of having children. The first is piru. Piru means to have them. Piru, be fruitful. Like the word perot. Perot is the same letters in English as ferut. Be fruitful. Perot, be fruitful. Piru. What does urbu then mean? Urbu means to multiply. What does it mean to multiply? The job of a parent is to multiply himself. Make duplicates of yourself. Now, how do you make a duplicate of yourself? You can't put yourself in the copy machine and you know, put, push 100 copies. We duplicate ourselves through our children. 
And now all of a sudden, you might have heard in America, they say, oh, he's a chip off the old block. They see a child that has the same, you know, good deeds as the father or the mother. Say, wow, you remind me of your parents. The parents have succeeded. They have duplicated themselves. If somebody could see the parent in the child, that means the parent now has uh, um, perpetuated himself for another generation. He's duplicated himself. Well, I'd like to give you an example of this. The famous story of the Akedat Yitzhak. So God tells Abraham, go take your son and go sacrifice him. Abraham was 137 years old at the time and Yitzhak was 37 years old. So everybody was adults here. Abraham tells his son Yitzhak, come, we're going to go on a picnic. Three days, a journey. Yitzhak was very astute. He sees that his father has wood, his father has fire. He says, clearly my father is intending to bring a sacrifice. Only one thing missing, where's the sacrifice? Abraham looks at Yitzhak and says, congratulations, you're the sacrifice. Human sacrifice. Instead of Yitzhak running for his life, which was probably most people would have done, I mean, I'm the sacrifice? Where, where, where does that come from? I thought God is against human sacrifice. He doesn't question his father. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even lose stride. It says, They continue to travel together. And ultimately, Yitzhak Avinu uh, 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 let himself be put on the Mizbeah. He told his father, tie me down tight, because I don't want to move, and God forbid, render the Qurban Pasul, if it's not done perfectly. And I ask myself, where in the world does a child have this, uh, it's not an instinct, it's against instinct. The instinct is to save your life. Where does a child, (laughs) where does the child get this uh, 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 power? It's only one place. You don't learn this in a textbook. They could teach you this in school, but you don't learn it from, uh, from, from, uh, uh, from a classroom. This is something that you learn from seeing it in your parents. <clears throat> now, I have no doubt, Avram Abinu and Sarah, they were parents. They must have had a Shabbat table. Shabbat table is a time where we could tell our children all the stories, teach them lessons. That's when we have their attention. And I have no doubt that they would sit at the Friday night table and... Uh, Sarah Emenu would tell uh, Abraham, tell him the story when they threw you into the fire. Yitzhak Abinu was a young man. Hey, Dad, they threw you into fire? I didn't hear that story. And how did they throw you into the fire? You're alive. So, uh, uh, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's a long story. No, 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 no. Tell it to me. So, well, when Daddy was young, Daddy believed in God, like we believe in God, in one God. And most of the world, if not all the world, did not believe in God. And there was a bad guy called Nimrod, and he passed the law that anybody that believes in one God, Hashem, Elohim, and promotes it, uh, is death by fire. And I was brought to Nimrod, and he asked me, is it true that you believe in one God? Yes. And where is that God? Eloheha Shamayim Eloheha Aris. He says, you know what's illegal? I want you to deny your God. I want you to denounce your God. Abraham says, I will not. This is the God. I cannot denounce the truth. Nimrod says, you see this fire? That fire was called Ur-Kastim. The fire is Kastim. If you don't renounce your God, I will take you and throw you into the fire. In a minute's time or less, you'll be relegated to ashes. Avram Abinu said, it is not for me to, to renounce my God. As a matter of fact, I double down. Hashem wa Elohim, God is God. And Nimrod takes Abraham, or his men take Abraham, and they throw him into the fire. And Yitzhak says, Daddy, what happened to you? He said, what happened? I'm here. I'm alive. Did you know that God's going to make a miracle for you? I had no idea. You mean your intention was to turn into ashes? Yes. I was willing to become pulverized into ashes for God, not to rebel against him. Could you imagine a 
you're a child and you hear your father telling you that story, and Sarah Imenu says, yeah, I remember when he came home, he smelled like smoke. I said, Abraham, why you smell? We just smoke a cigar. Yeah, you, you smell like smoke. Uh, don't ask. I asked, what happened to you today? Uh, don't ask. They threw me into a fire. They threw me into a fire. And then all of a sudden, all the eyewitnesses come. Yes, your husband is a Sadiq. He loves God. He doesn't want to uh, 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 renounce him and so on. And Yitzhak Avinu's brought up. And he doesn't hear that one story about his father. He hears a lot of stories like that. Well, that's where you learn to emulate your father. Anyway, Yitzhak Avinu was already trained for 37 years with this mentality. So when God now is calling on Yitzhak, Yitzhak says, I am here and I am ready like my father is ready. And he goes on the Mizbeah. Now, of course, just like God saved Avraham, God saved Yitzhak, but Yitzhak didn't know he's going to be saved. But he was willing. Now, pay attention, ladies. What happens after the Akedah is over? God, as Abraham is about to slaughter his son, God from the heavens calls to Abraham. And the question is, why does he call him twice? Why does he mention his name twice? The simple explanation is, because he was so engrossed in the mitzvah, so he had to call him, Abraham, Abraham, don't do it. But the deeper explanation is that God was saying a great compliment. God was saying before the Akedah, there was only one Abraham in the world. But now, Abraham, you have duplicated yourself and your child. Abraham, Abraham, there's two Abrahams in the world. You fulfilled not only Peru, but you fulfilled Urbu. You duplicated your values. You did the impossible. You were able to duplicate this value of Mesidut Nefesh in your child. The world is not no longer with an Abraham. It's Abraham, Abraham. And the Goyim, Hasbash Shalom, would say, Abraham Sr., Abraham Jr. We don't say that. It's Abraham and Yitzhak, but Yitzhak is the chip off the old block. Yitzhak is following the uh, high level of Abraham Abinu. Abraham, Abraham. And that's the goal uh, in all of our lives, uh, ladies. You know, we have to make Rivka, Rivka, Sarah, Sarah, Rachel, Rachel, Leah, Leah. Whatever you uh, uh, hold value and dear to your children. So we have to put, so that's the goal. Negad Shemeh, Avad Shemeh. That we have to uh, uh, attract our name, that our name should have a, 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 a movement. Our name should be continued. That's the word. Negad Shemeh. Continue your name. But when should you continue it? Avad Shemeh. After you lose it. That's the key. That's the secret of life. Try to continue your name even after you lose it. Meaning, even after you pass, after 120 years, set up your. Um, even after a person's demise, a person still should continue to live through his children and students. But girls, ladies, I'd like to say another explanation in your honor. There are so many interpretations. This is a, this is a lesson in life. To me, this is the most, although I love the last interpretation that I gave you, I, I don't say no, but I, I enjoy this one just as much. I, I don't have favorites. I like them all equally, but this one I have a, 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 have a great affinity towards. I want to teach you a lesson of life. You probably know it already from experience, but you probably never uh, analyzed what's happening. You know this happens, but you never thought of it that this is a, a process. The Kabbalists always talk that always before growth will come decay. Decay is always the sign before something develops and grows. It's interesting. We always looked at decay as something negative. But actually, it's a precursor to life. The Zohar brings simple proofs to this, just from natural things that we see every day. If anybody knows anything about planting, 
you take a seed and you put it in the ground. Well, most of you don't see what happens to that seed underneath the ground. But if you read about it in the books, they'll tell you it decomposes. The seed decomposes. And right before it reaches the level of complete decomposition, all of a sudden it starts to sprout. It has to go through a very, very uh, negative situation before it turns around and all of a sudden it sprouts. That's the way things happen in life. It's almost as if always you have to go a, a, a little uh, down before you move to the next stage up. Uh, take, take, take the daily day. The morning light cannot shine unless the world goes through 12 hours of darkness. That's not just you know, like we learned in first grade. That's giving you a process. Success usually is preceded by a hard time, by a difficult time. And then after that difficult time passes, the growth spurt happens. Uh, take it from fertility. Fertility, the Gemara says, and forgive me, but the Gemara says fertility begins from a putrid seed. Putrid. Putrid means tipasiruha. You say, what? If somebody would see something that's sarua, something is it's putrid, you wouldn't think something like a human being can manifest from putrid? But that's exactly. And that's, that's not a coincidence, that's the way it happens. Uh, there always has to be a process of going down before you go up. I know this uh, from my own, uh, my own humble career in life, in personal life, and in community. Uh, every time uh, I was promoted to another, to another level, it always came with a very, very hard time before it. Uh, when I was young, I didn't understand these hard times. And I wasn't able to connect that a good time is coming. But as I got older, I'm now aware of that, that that's, that's the process. And there was a big rabbi in Israel that made me aware of this, Rabbi Reuven Elbaz. He's probably one of the most influential rabbis in the Baal Teshuvah movement today. He's been doing it for years. He's a real tzaddik. And he once saw me and said, Rabbi Eliyahu, you look down. I was a little down. I was a little deflated. I don't know what happened, uh, you know, in my career at one time. I was getting beaten up a little, you know, pushed around. And I was a little uh, down, I have to admit. And he came to me and says, how do you explain the following hazal? What, what does it say, Rabbi? Tell me what it says. I'll give you an explanation. He said, it says that every blade of grass has an angel that administers the growth of that, of that blade of grass. And the Midrash goes like this. Al kol esev ve'esev, every blade of grass, yesh malach, shemake oto, it hits the blade, and says, Gedal, grow. So Rabbi Elbaz asked me, why does he have to hit him first? Just let him say, grow. And he answered, because growth only comes after a person gets a makkah. That's the way it has to happen. doesn't mean a physical makkah. doesn't mean a blemish. It just means that that's the process. Like a plant grows before, after decomposition, like day comes after night. I'll give you an example from history and maybe you'll understand it a little clearer. And then you'll start thinking in your life, you'll say, yeah, I went through a difficult time, but when, once it passed, a door opened up, a door that wasn't there before. That's the way things happen. A person goes through a little uh, uh, turmoil, or a little bump, we'll call it. Maybe it's a better way, a little bump. But the bump lifts them up eventually to the next plateau. That's the way you have to look at these things. I, take the example, I'll give you an old example. I'd rather give you the more modern example. Let's take the old example first. Look at the Jews in Mitzrayim. Could you, could you have a bigger bump than that? That's a pothole. That they fell into Egypt, the darkness, for 210 years. But what did it lead them to? It led them to Matan Torah. And the Zohar Kedoshim, but they had to go through this decomposition and when did God take them out? At the moment, at the brink of decomposition, of complete decomposition. 
at 49.9 level of Tum'ah, where there was almost no life left. There was lifeless. The nation was almost uh, complete, finished, fatal, uh, flatline. At that moment, Rav says, this is Hoshik Afilah, complete darkness for the Jewish people as a state. And what happens? They bring them out, Matan Torah, and all of a sudden, that's the way it has to happen. I don't have time today to explain why it has to be that way, but know that that's the way. That gave me a lot of uh, 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 perspective because you think that was the last time that I had a, a um, you know, a, uh, a down in life? It was not, but I was always prepared. I would tell my wife, I said, Sergeant, get ready. Something good's going to happen. Something good's going to happen. doesn't look like it. <laughs> You'll see. You'll see this is the setup. You have to go down to go up. You ever see uh, when somebody jumps on a trampoline? And before they jump, what do they do? They bend down first. But the only reason why they're bending down, and the lower they bend down, the higher they can propel themselves to go up. It's the same thing in life. But Olam puts a person in a test first, and from the test... The example that I'd love to give you is one that you'll appreciate. You know, the Jewish people for 2,000 years were in exile. We were banished from the land when the Romans destroyed the Beit HaMikdash 2,000 years ago. Close to 2,000 years ago. Titus came in and he burnt the Beit HaMikdash, the beautiful edifice, God's house, to the ground. Ashes, nothing left. I was once in Rome with my wife and we were taking a tour of the city and we had a private tour guide, a lady, nice Roman lady. She took us around to the Jewish quarter and so on and so forth. Goya. And she says, now we're going to go to the Arch of Titus. So oh, this is what I came for. This is what I want to see. She brings me to the Arch of Titus. And I see on the arch the Jewish people in the stone etched uh, in chains and balls and chains. And they're dragging the holy menorah. And I know where that menorah came from. That menorah came from the temple in Jerusalem. And you saw the image of them dragging it to Rome. And in big, bold letters on top, it says, Judea Capta. The Jews are in captivity. And when I saw it, I couldn't control myself. I start to cry. I start to cry uncontrollably. And the tour guide says, I don't understand. I have been giving this tour for, what, what does this mean to you that you're crying? Nobody ever had this reaction. You're crying. What, this is a historical site. I said, do you understand that as Jews, we get up every night in the middle of the night and we sit on the floor and we put ashes on our heads and we cry because of this event? You know how this event of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, it goes to our core. We fast four days a year. We don't eat. After summer, we have a, a, no party because of this event. And do you know that from Rome tomorrow, I'm traveling to Jerusalem, and you know where the first place I'm going to go to? It's to the place where he destroyed. And when I go to that place, I'm going to rip my garment because we have mourning because of the... I wasn't aware. I didn't know of this... That's the Galut. That's what happened when they destroyed it. And from that day, we were banished from Israel. The land sat fallow for thousands of years. Jews were not able to go back. And those that were able to go back were persecuted. There was not a Yeshuv in Eretz Israel. And then all of a sudden, we know the events that happened in our century, the Holocaust. You tell me, was there ever greater decomposition of the Jewish people than the Holocaust? The, 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 the majority of European Jewry. You know, somebody once said, I heard Prime Minister Begin once was talking to uh, President Carter and he tells Carter, he was making a point, he says, do you know, President Carter, that our... People were tertiated during World War II. And Carter stopped and says, tertiated? I never heard that word, tertiated. What is this word, tertiated? He said, did you ever hear of the word decimated? He says, yes. He says, what does decimate mean? Decimate, deca is 10. 
Decimate is to kill one out of ten. When you kill one out of ten, you have decimated somebody. He says, my nation wasn't decimated. We were tertiated. They killed one out of three. This was the lowest time in Clias. And guess what? If you would have asked the pundits, all the geniuses on the news and in the papers and the colleges, you know, what's going to be with the Jews after the Holocaust? You'd say, ah, they're marginalized. You're not going to hear from them too much. Every family has death. Every family is broken. It's a nation that has no money. The Europeans, they came from Europe. Those that survived, they, they were emaciated. They came 90-pound skeletons without a dollar to their name, nothing. And you say to them, yeah, they're going to be... Uh, it's just a matter of time where these people die out. You'll never hear from the Jews again, you know. That's what everybody thought. Two years after the war, all of a sudden, United Nations which is from God, they announced the establishment of the state of Israel. 2,000 years we didn't have this. And everybody can go back now. And all of a sudden, 20 years after that, the Kotel Amaravi is in our hands, 1967. And all of a sudden, look at the land of Israel today. Am Yisrael Haibikayam. Not only in Israel, but around the world, Jews are flourishing. Who would have believed the guy scratching his head? I thought we had these people in a stranglehold. I thought we had them dead. They were on the floor. They were, there was nothing left of them. There was nothing left of them. And what happens? Not only are we alive, but Klai Israel is alive and well. Six million Jews living in Eretz Israel. It's, for the first time in history, more Jews are living in Eretz Israel than in the diaspora combined, which is an tra- incredible accomplishment. When the Ramban thousand years ago went to Israel, he couldn't find a minyan in Israel, in Jerusalem. They couldn't find 10 Jews to make a minyan. And today we have over 6 million Jews living in Eretz Israel, more than the diaspora. What does that tell you? That's the perfect example that before something great happens, the process is decomposition. That's the modern example of Shabud Mitzrayim that led to Matan Torah. And here you have the miserable stories of the Holocaust, which is decomposition, and all of a sudden, it brings us to uh, 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 the high levels of Eretz Israel. I'm not saying that I, I want it to be like this, but it seems that it's necessary to be like this. I wish it could just be, you know, we go straight to, but it doesn't work that way. Uh, you know it in life. Anything that you want to succeed in life, it's work first. It's work. Nothing comes on a silver platter. Person wants to make a career for himself. He has to toil and toil and toil. And from the toiling, something comes good at the end. You don't get to the end without taking uh, uh, the, the, the hard road first. Uh, this, is, uh, this, is, this is the lesson. And that's what the Mishnah is saying, ladies. Negad Shemeh, the name of Klal Yisrael, was continued. Continued, it moved on. Negad Shemeh, the name of the Jewish people, Klal Yisrael's name, continued to live on. You know when? Under what circumstance? From Avad Shemeh. The Goyim tried to make Avad Shemeh. They tried to lahashmid, laharog, ul abed. That was the Kavanah. And you know what came from the Avad Shemeh? Negad Shemeh. It only promoted the name of Christ. Now we only, we're much more popular than we were even before the Holocaust. We're much more noticeable. The, the Klai Yisrael's uh, 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 effort or, or, or mark, I should say, in the world is much more pronounced than it was before. We're all over. And we're in Eretz Yisrael. Now we have an army, we have a nation, we have a government. We have, and the Gleam are saying, hold it. We thought, uh, we thought that we had them. And let me tell you another secret, by the way. Don't think that the, the, the tzaddikim in the United Nations, when they gave us Eretz Yisrael and the, that vote, that they, they were doing it, you know, with, uh, with the best intentions. I'm almost convinced that they made the following calculation. That, you know what? Anyway, the Jews, they, they're over with. So we'll throw them a bone. Not for them, but just to satisfy our conscience. Okay, they suffered a lot, poor, you know. But, and you know what's going to happen anyway? They knew. They knew what was going to happen. And it happened. They said, we'll give him Israel, and we'll let the Arabs take care of it. 
whatever Hitler didn't finish, the Arabs will finish. So, hey, let them take And guess what? They were almost right. The next day that we got Israel, five Arab nations came and attacked. Nobody thought we were going to win the War of Independence. What kind of nation? We don't even have an army. We're, it's a rogue. We're just, we don't have weapons. We have nothing. How are you going to win? And these are five Arab nations with militaries that are, that are substantial. And we're, we're, we're fighting like David and Goliath with, 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 with bows and arrows and uh, 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 slingshots. But guess what? We won that war. And the world is scratching themselves. Hmm. <laughs> They're still here. <laughs> How do these people... The, <laughs> like the Pasuk says. And that's what the Mishnah is teaching us. <laughs> the nation, God will never leave Am Yisrael. The nation will always exist. Even at a time of Abad Shemeh. Even... Now I want to say it on a deeper level. I know I talked about Eretz Yisrael. But do you know World War II, the Holocaust, besides the main loss, which is a loss of people, you can't replace people, six million people, the number is, is staggering. But do you know how much Torah was lost? Let's look at it from that standpoint. Let's look at it now from the, from the perspective of how much Torah was lost. You know how many Tamid Achamim, their brains, their students, their books, their libraries, after the Holocaust was over, there was no yeshivas. There was no yeshivas. All the European yeshivas were, were considered the Ivy League yeshivas. That's what they were in that time. In 1492, they destroyed the Spanish yeshivas. But then it recovered in Europe. And all the Torah was coming out of Europe. And you know, there was no yeshivas left. None. And if there's no yeshivas, that means there's no Rosh yeshivas, there's no Tabid Achamin, there's no libraries. If you were to ask a person, what level was Torah on before the Holocaust? It was a 10. There was, there was maybe 20 Ivy League yeshivas in Europe. And they were all burnt to the ground, gone. No students left over. If you ask somebody after the Holocaust, what's going to be with Torah? You'd say, well, those days are over. Torah? We could reminisce the heyday, you know, the Torah, you, what it used to be. But we're never going to have, you know, any yeshivas like we had in the in old country. Uh, listen, the Germans got us. Ladies, go to Israel today, come to America. Do you know that most of those yeshivas have not all replanted themselves? You know the yeshua we have here on Osher Parkway and Avenue are called the Miri Yeshiva? Where they got that name Miri Yeshiva? There's a city in Poland called Mir. The original Mir Yeshiva was in the city of Mir. It was, a, it was a world-class yeshiva destroyed to the ground. Whoever would believe that they would open up a branch in America, which has a thousand students, and they have a branch in Israel that has 8,000 students, much bigger than the original. And the Germans are saying, hold it, I thought we got rid of these mere guys. <laughs> They're like the frogs in Egypt. You hit them and they, they, they multiply. Now we have two of them. That's what happened. And it happened with the Telji yeshiva in Chicago. And the Cleveland, there was original Tells in Europe. They destroyed the Tells. Slobotka, they destroyed the original. We have it in uh, in, in Go through every, the Volazhin, the Panovich, every yeshiva down the, down the line. Torah today, we're having a renaissance period. A renaissance. The Torah had to go all the way down. Avad Shemeh, we're going to destroy the Torah. And the second it reaches almost oblivion, they got Shemeh. The name starts to, Torah starts to become popular again. It's a, it's a lesson in life. Uh, the lesson in life is that uh, most of the time, uh, lightness or light must be preceded for dark. <clears throat> and you just have to make it through the, you know, the, the difficult time and then prepare yourself for something great on a personal level, but on a comfort level, Kla Yisrael is always going to exist. God promised us that not only but Matsilenu, and now we're on a, a higher level and we're more prominent and we're more uh, important. Uh, there's a greater presence, whether it's Israel, Torah, people, than it was before. And like I said, our enemies scratch their head and say, they're still here? <laughs> what are they still doing here? 
It's like uh, kryptonite. You can't get rid of them. No matter what you do to them, they, they have a way not only to survive. Okay, it'd be one thing if we survive, but it's more survive. We flourish. That's a, that's a different madriga. And that's the lesson of the Mishnah. Negad Shemeh, Avad Shemeh. Ladies, let me just review quickly, just because I know we said a lot today. I like to review the explanations that we said. The first explanation we said is the negative. Those that are drawn after their name will lose their name. Uh, good oil only floats to the top when it's unadulterated, when it happens naturally. But there's Shem and Ra. That's the adulterated oil of people that seek fame. Hakam Baruch warned us. Those that run towards glory, the glory will run away from them. And those that run away from it, as long as you're not turning back to see where it is, the glory will catch up to you. And everybody will get what they deserve. The glory belongs to you. Sit tight, it'll come to you. Uh, and the lesson is not to ask for it. That's the first explanation. The second explanation we said is one has to figure out a way to continue his name after his name is no longer. Nigad Shemeh, continue your name. When? After Abad Shemeh, after your name is no longer and you do that to your children. The goal is to duplicate yourself like Rabbi Hirsch said. Abraham, Abraham, teach your values to your children so even after your past person passes on, he's still moving. Like King David told his son, I still want to be a holech after I pass away. Therefore, you must be a good man because your goodness is going to uh, uh, impact me. And the third explanation that we said is, as a Jewish nation, that even though Klai Yisrael goes through periods of avad shemeh, but from every avad shemeh, they weren't able to completely destroy us. It always led to a negit shemeh, to a continuation of the name. And on a personal level, it happens like that. Every blade of grass will grow, but not before an angel has to hit it. Omer lo, oto, and after it's oto, omrim lo, gedal. It tells it to grow. Ladies, I'll take this opportunity to wish you a Yom Tov. And Be'ezat uh, Hashem, next week, we'll continue where we left off. If somebody asks you what we learned today, don't be embarrassed. You only learned four words. Only four words. Negad Shemeh, Avad Shemeh. Any questions, ladies? Can I ask a question? Absolutely.